Hey, this is Paul Paradise, author of the novel The Counterfeit Detective, published by Corolla Books, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 46 of IP Fridays. Today, Trisha Volpe talks with us about David Bowie and his intellectual property. Ken Suzanne is interviewing Paul Paradise about his new novel, The Counterfeit Detective. And the USPTO is seeking nominations for the National Medal of Technology and Innovation. The National Medal of Technology and Innovation is awarded annually by the USPTO to individuals, teams or companies or divisions of companies for their outstanding contribution to the economic or environmental or social well-being of the US. The medal also seeks to inspire future generations of Americans to prepare for and pursue technical careers to keep America and the U.S. at the forefront of global technology and economic leadership. If you want to nominate someone, you can simply go to www.ipfridays.com slash national medal, one word, www.ipfridays.com slash national medal, one word. David Bowie was as influential as he was successful as both a recording and a performing artist. He died last week of cancer at the age of 69. While Bowie took risks in music, he is also known for the risks he took with his own intellectual property. Trisha Volpe of Barnes & Thornburg explains. was the soundtrack for so many generations, singer, musician, artist. But David Bowie's talents stretched far beyond Ziggy Stardust and Major Tom. Bowie will be remembered as more than a musical and artistic visionary known for his indelible impact on popular culture. Bowie was also an IP innovator. In 1997, David Bowie was the first musician to securitize the future earnings of his music, selling $55 million in bonds. Bowie bonds, as they were called, were secured by his royalties. According to a report by National Public Radio, Bowie received a lump sum from investors, and in return, they received a stream of income from his future royalties, in a sense, their own piece of Bowie. The rights to some 280 pieces of intellectual property owned by Bowie were put into a company, and the revenues they generated were used to pay on the bond. It was a 7.9% return every year. Bowie bonds were one of the first examples of a bond using intellectual property as the underlying collateral. Bowie was also involved in the development of the idea that the internet could connect people and music. In 1998, 
he launched his own internet service provider, BowieNet, and connected fans of his music through chat rooms and forums long before modern social networks. And by the way, Bowie is also the owner of a combined trademark and service mark for his name in the U.S. David Bowie, always on the cutting edge of music, business, and intellectual property. Reporting for IP Fridays, I'm Trisha Volpe. Thank you, Trisha. Now, Ken, you had the chance to interview Paul Paradise about his new book, The Counterfeit Detective. Ralph, I'm joined today by Paul Paradise, who just released a novel about a private investigator investigating counterfeiters. Paul has authored numerous books and articles and has been interviewed on radio for his expertise with trademark counterfeiting, called The Business Crime of the 21st Century by the FBI. The Counterfeit Detective is based in part on a book excerpt of the real-life investigator David Woods that appeared in PI Magazine and later in Paul's non-fiction book, Trademark Counterfeiting, Product Piracy and the Billion-Dollar Threat to the U.S. Economy, published by Prager. The author has also published in Electronics Now, Police, Law and Order, and PI Magazine. Welcome, Paul, to IP Fridays. Thanks, Ken. I'm glad to be on the show. Excellent, Paul. So let's get started, Paul. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your legal background? Sure. I started out in the editorial department of Matthew Bender in the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in the indexing department. In fact, they had about 15 full-time indexers, indexing assistants, a law school students, and we worked a lot preparing the supplements and uh, worked on newsletters. Well, after I'd been there a number of years, I realized if you want to move up the corporate ladder, you pretty much have to have your JD degree. And so well, for a while there, I was young. I thought maybe I could become a lawyer. So I branched out from there, and uh, I went from there to a, a patent firm, Amster, Rothstein, and Ebenstein in 1987. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they had a anti-piracy unit. So I interviewed with uh, an attorney named Robert Tucker and Milton Springgut. Now, as luck would have it, they had just published a chapter on trademark counterfeiting for Matthew Bender. Wow. So <laughs> talk about being in the right place at the right time. That's right. Needless to say, I was hired on the spot. Now, this was a great time to get into trademark counterfeiting because President Reagan had just signed the 1984 Trademark Counterfeiting Act. So the principal weapon used by AR&E clients was the ex parte seizure, which is essentially a civil seizure of the counterfeiter's inventory of fakes. Mm -hmm. A.R.N.E.'s clients at the time were Polo by Ralph Lauren, we had Gucci, Guess, Bausch & Lomb, and Zigzag pa Cigarette Papers, among others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a, a number of years later, I received a Master's in Library Science from Pratt Institute in Brooklyn with the intention of becoming a law librarian, but currently I'm working as the Hudson County Records Manager. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me a little bit about David Woods, the PI uh, that you met? Sure. Uh, well, I originally met a day when I was with ARE, and I worked on a number of uh, numerous ex parte seizures while I was there. Now, we had a close partnership with Gibney, Anthony, and Flaherty, and uh, we worked with Heather McDonald and also with Brian Brocade. I think Brian Brocade is still there, and I think yes. Heather McDonald has moved on. I actually worked for Gibney, Anthony in the beginning of my career. I know that. That's, <laughs> isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, small world. Yep. So Dave worked on cases with both firms, teamed up doing what we call roving John Doe seizures 
of fake watches on Canal Street, which is in Manhattan's Chinatown. Mm-hmm. A.R.N.E. had Gucci, and give me Anthony Flaherty had Rolex. So we had a big problem with uh, street peddlers. And I have an interesting anecdote. Um, a number of the corporate headquarters for, uh, say, Paul Bar Alpha Rand are all in New York City, and they had a problem with street peddlers who were selling, like, right outside their front door. So they would call uh, the, the law firm, and, you know, they had to, to, to complain about this. So mm-hmm. they had a problem because the police, oh, by the time they, they would not even arrive there that same day. So they had to think of a strategy to, 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 uh, to, to combat this. So what they did was they drafted up a, a cease and desist letter addressed to a, a John Doe street peddler at the corner of such and such an intersection. Then they would call Dave Woods to come up. So with the private investigator, they would go out, they would serve the peddler with the C&D letter. And of course, it threatened all kinds of legal action if the if the uh, pillar didn't cooperate, uh, trouble attorney's damages. Uh, but as a practical matter, if, if the uh, peddler just wa- picked up his goods and walked away, they were powerless to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So, so in some cases, they actually surrendered the goods. In almost every case, the, the peddler would walk away. Uh, but I remember we had one peddler who, for whatever reason, you know, if we chased him away, he would be back in, in a, a couple of days later. So we had a constant problem with this one guy. And we had a, a, an associate. His name was Dennis Kavanaugh. And Dennis was a great guy. He was a real character. He used to work for the CIA. So he got the bright idea. He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tail this peddler and see where he goes. So <laughs> sure enough, the next time we went after this guy, the peddler picked up stuff. He was walking away, and, and Dennis by himself goes out. He's trailing the guy. He trailed him down into the underground subway, and then the peddler pulled a knife on him and threatened him. Oh, so he had to beat a hasty retreat. Wow. Yeah. Well, I've known Dave for about 30 years, and he was instrumental in my career as a writer. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, a chapter-related profile of Mr. Woods was published in PI Magazine, and that was in the early 1990s, and that was the foundation for me. Um, yes. The uh, publisher of PI Magazine actually called me up. PI Magazine at that time was part fiction and part nonfiction about private investigators. So he loved this piece. He said, I get plenty of f- good fiction, but not of not not a lot of really good nonfiction. He actually published 25 pages. So it was, in fact, a chapter-length profile, which later on uh, was, was published in my, my nonfiction book. And, uh Yeah, yeah. so I maintained um, with my friends now for about 30 years, and I saw him not too recently out in... Uh, I, I did a, a book reading out in Riverhead, uh, Long Island, and uh, we had lunch together. But, now, now, Paul, can mm-hmm. you tell our listeners a little bit about the book cover for the book, The Counterfeit sure. Detective? Sure. Well, one of Dave's <clears throat> clients was Cartier, the watch manufacturer. Now, each year, Cartier paved, used to it. They don't do it anymore. But each year, Cartier used to pave a block of Fifth Avenue in midtown Manhattan and line it with counterfeit watches. And then they would steamroll them. So Dave was the one who packed up the fake watches, put them in drums, shipped them into New York City, and helped them lay them out on a block of Fifth Avenue. Wow. Yeah, the original picture is in my nonfiction book on trademark counterfeiting, and that, in fact, was the inspiration for the book's cover. I can see how that was an inspiration. It must have been a, a, a sight to see. Oh, yeah, well, if you see the original picture, there's, there's standing room-only crowds out there. It's too bad they don't do that anymore because it definitely sends out a, a strong message. For sure. Now, this nonfiction book uh, sold out on the first print run in five months. Uh, uh, to what do you attribute its popularity? Sure. 
Well, it was published right after the trade dispute with the People's Republic of China. In fact, I had a chapter on the trade dispute, and uh, a portion of which was published in the World and I magazine. The chapter included interviews with many people who visited China during this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, most importantly was John Bliss, who at the time was president of the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition. Another woman, too, is actually uh, from England. Her name was Valerie Colburn, and she was with the Business Software Alliance. And also this chapter covered the role of the USTR, and the special 301 process was examined in light of the investigation into China's piracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, so the book also had interviews with many people who were heavily involved in the counterfeiting problem during the 1980s and 1990s. One person in particular was Will Nix. Now, Will was head of the anti-piracy uh, at the Motion Picture Association of America, and he later moved to NBA Properties. When Will started out there, I think that would be in the mid-19... No, it had to be uh, late 1970s. He was in charge of a part-time uh, investigator on the West Coast and a part-time investigator on the East Coast, and most of the counterfeiting was 16-millimeter prints. It was like a small underground trade. After the Sony Betamax case, uh, the counterfeiting problem went from ground zero to worldwide almost overnight, and this was mostly VHS tapes. In fact, London was the uh, capital of piracy uh, at one point during the 1980s with about an 80% piracy rate. Mm -hmm. So we'll establish the um, Federation Against Copyright Theft fact in London to combat the piracy problem in Europe. In fact, it's still ongoing now for about a quarter century. Another person I interviewed was Stephen D'Onofrio, who was the head of the RI, the Recording Industry Association's anti-piracy effort. And Steve started out there as an, an intern, and I think he took over the uh, anti-piracy unit in 1981. And um, his job title just soared with the invention of, of the compact disc. So he had a huge, he worked uh, with a gentleman named Frank Creighton. Another person I interviewed was Jim Bykoff, and he was one of the original founders of the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition. And he, he's Jim been a guest was, here on IP Fridays as well. Has he? Is he yes. Uh, he was with Baker Hostetler mm-hmm. down in Washington, D.C., I believe. Yeah, he's but, since relocated all, from what I understand. Has he? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, so all of these men are around but have moved to different uh, companies and situations. But one person I interviewed, uh, and this was probably the best interview I had there, was a gentleman named Ron Bliss. Ron was a former POW at the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam. Most people just think of him in that terms, but they don't realize he was a pretty good trademark attorney, and he was with Fulbright and Jaworski in Houston. Yes. And uh, one of the interesting stories he had involved counterfeit uh, auto parts. In fact, they were brake pads. So he trailed this. The investigation led to Brooklyn. They conducted a raid, and then he confronted one of the owners of of the factory, and he said, he wanted the specifications for these brake pads. And uh, the guy stammered. He says, I don't know where they are. He got on his phone and he called in his brother. They came in there. So when his brother came in, they were both very, very excited and or agitated. And they were conversing with each other in Russian. What they didn't realize was that Ron Bliss is fluent in Russian. <laughs> <laughs> so at one point he says to him, look, quit fooling around. You guys are in a lot of trouble. Now give me the specifications for these automobile brake pads. And the two Russians just turned white. Wow. <laughs> and they complied right away. That's a story for you. Yeah, he was a real 
talker, and I've talked to other people who know him. He said, "That's Ron, all right. That's the way he talks." Yes. And he, he wanted to to eventually write a novel. You know, whenever he got when he got out of the, uh, the legal field, but uh, yeah, he passed away from skin cancer. I found out. Now, you mentioned in the preface of the novel um, that the novel was inspired by Andy Warhol's famous painting, uh, 32 Campbell's Soup Cans. Now, how did that come about? Sure. Well, there are many similarities between Andy Warhol's career and my fictional P.I. Both uh, were struggling artists who find a different way to express their art. Andy Warhol, I think he was, he, uh, was born in Pittsburgh, and he came to New York City really to make a name for himself as an artist. And in fact, he was a, a commercial artist, uh, and a very good one. Mm-hmm. But he didn't get the recognition that he wanted in the fine art establishment. They actually looked down on him because he did commercial art. That might have been the end of the story, but he found a home in pop art, which was an anti-art art movement. Now, interestingly enough, Warhol was not making a statement about the can in his famous statement, but he was making a statement about the camel soup trademark and the packaging. <laughs> that it, <laughs> so that is, in fact, what, what is at the heart of commercial advertising. And at the time when his painting first came out, people called it a fake. But over time, it was recognized as a masterpiece. So my protagonist, P.I., whose name is C.O. Jones, is a failed artist in the beginning of the story, and he sends his longs to return to the theater. In the end, he discovers he's using his undercover skills to better use as a P.I. than as a failed actor. Interesting. So that's kind of like the scenario. Now, um, Paul, if people want to find this book, how, how do they go about doing that? Sure. Well, it's on Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's distributed through Ingram. So it should be available to various libraries out there. Uh, it should be uh, available as well on Kohler Books' website. The mm-hmm. book just came out. I don't know whether it's uh, on there yet, but it will be very, very soon. Interesting. And what's what's on the agenda? What's your next writing project? Okay. Well, I'm finishing up a book now on file sharing, which I think is a big, big thing. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah. So among the topics we're going to cover are Napster. We're going to cover the Pirate Bay, uh, the Pirate Political Party, which is very, very big in Europe. We're going to t- discuss the Stop Online Piracy Act. Uh, I'm also going to stop the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement, which was sabotaged in Europe. They came out against that full force, and that ultimately failed. And uh, I'm going to cover a few other topics along that line. Well, Paul, thanks so much for joining us today on IP Fridays. This has truly been a fascinating conversation. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Ken. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. 
None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.